What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast. After a brief hiatus, we are back with a very special episode today. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Hausdorfer. Now, Dr. John, uh, you had your hand in putting out a book called What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Um, you know, the artist Lila June, I believe, says that, you know, we're at a, a crossroads where we're kind of at an evolve or die uh, moment. Um, so in, in 2021, uh, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? Well, it's an honor to be here, Zach. Congratulations on, on the website and the podcast. Um, I, I just need to credit my co-editors, Brooke Hecht, sure. Lisa Nelson, and Catherine Kasuf-Cummings, uh, all from associated with the Center for Humans and Nature. They've been incredible partners in bringing this question to life. You know, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? First means not just thinking the answer, right? You know, this book has 45 different voices from, I think, 20 different cultures, you know, and including people who are ecologists can, and can listen to the land, right? So we're, being a good ancestor begins with humility, recognizing that it's really been individualism, that's led us into this mess, this mess of the average American consuming, um, basically, if everyone on the planet consumed the amount of the average American, we need three planets, right? And so here we are living a three-planet lifestyle that emerges from that individualism driven by consumption. And so first, what does it mean to be a good ancestor is recognizing that as an individual, you can't answer that alone, right? And so how do we uh, learn how to think ecologically and listen to you know, the, the millions of species with which we evolved. How do we learn to build solidarity as allies with diverse cultures around the world and listen to the world around us as our teachers? You know, one of the things that uh, in indigenous author Robin Wall Kimmerer says um, about that humility is when you look at a lot of indigenous creation stories, humans show up last. So we're showing up last Everything else is our elder, right? Um, and so, you know, first is asking the land, you know, and really connecting with your place, understanding what makes where you live the place that it is. So, for example, Zach, I'm talking to you from the heart of the Rocky Mountains in Gunnison, Colorado. And for my place, the ecosystems, um, our sense of who we are, our economy, our cultural activities are nothing without snow in the mountains, right? Climate change is hitting that snowpack hard. And without that snow, our rivers are drying up. The ranchers are in trouble. The ski industry is in trouble. The people like the Hopi or Mexican people way downstream from us are in trouble. Riparian ecosystems are in trouble. So being a good ancestor is knowing your place and what in that place makes it that place you fight for that. Because if you don't have that daily connection with the fight, it becomes exhausting and abstract, you know? And so the second thing in being a good ancestor is not just going beyond your own mind and asking the land and many cultures, it's also finding um, the aspect of your place that makes it what it is, that makes you who you are and fighting for that. It's still about climate change for me, right? It's still about 24, 50 goals of keeping things below 1.5 degrees Celsius increase globally, right? It may still involve the same strategies of transitions to renewable energies or local food systems, but 
what keeps the fight going is each person knowing in their heart, why me, why here, right? And so if I may, I'd like to share a couple of voices, Zach, from yeah, that would be awesome. different cultures that contributed to the book, just to give you an example of what happens when you start listening to other places, right? For me, a professor of ski bum in the Rockies, it's a fight for snowpack, which is also a fight for Hopi downstream, riparian ecosystems downstream, right? Um, for Aaron Abeta, who's a Latinx poet from about two hours from here, he says, I am asked what kind of ancestor I will be. I struggle with the answer because I mistake it for asking about the future, but really it is calling me back to the places where I learned to be. And for him, Antonito, Colorado, where he's from, is the place where there always had to be a fire because, you know, they were pretty impoverished there going back eight generations. So they needed a good relationship with the forest to keep the house warm, right, to keep that fire going. So he calls himself an ancestor of fire, right, continuing the practices of his grandmother. Uh, a Black author named Dr. Lindsay Lunsford from Tuskegee University, a great historic Black college. She's thinking about herself as a descendant of enslaved peoples. What does it mean for her to ask what kind of ancestor does she want to be if she doesn't know all of her ancestors because of those injustices, right? And she says to her grandchildren who are not alive yet, she says, but if fate robs you and it has, as it has countless of the ability to inherit your land or your legacy, if no one sings to you our family's song, if it is to be that one day you find yourself without me, without stories of where you came from, of who you are, know this, know that some things can never be lost. Even without your name, you'll always be what you're made of, right? And so her, that's not snowpack, right? But for her, it's like knowing you're made of struggle. And even if you don't have access to the stories of that struggle anymore, the beauty that has emerged from that, right, can always give one strength. Uh, author from India, Vandana Shiva, you know, she's thinking through this as well. And she says, we've been so badly trashed. And she's talking about Indian farmers, but she's also talking about affluent consumers like me, right? Who are asked to pursue happiness based on buying more crap. That's trashing me as well, right? It's keeping me from fully discovering myself. She says, we've been so badly trashed that most people feel I'm nobody. Because that's what the systems told us. You're nobody. You're disposable. No. Even the tiniest microbe has meaning and significance. You have meaning and significance. And go into yourself and think of what is meaningful to you. Because that, then, is what will give you a sense of what you want to hand over to the future and answer. What kind of ancestor do you want to be? <laughs> right? Wow. And for her, the ancestor wants to be the first thing she said to me zach thinking about climate change she said well first i want to be an ancestor at all right that there will be future generations of you know indian people humans in general mm -hmm. for her secondly kind of ancestor she wants to be is one who's worked so hard with farmers to restore organic food systems that not only have they kept alive their dignity and livelihood in that place They've also discovered their own value through doing that, their own value from seeing the value of even microbes, right? 250,000 Indian farmers have taken their lives in the last 20 years. And so she really, as an ancestor for her, it's about that dignity. So again, it's place-based, 
I'll do one more for you. Awesome. Right? I'm loving these. All right. Indigenous author Winona LaDuke, right, who's very much on the front lines of the pipeline struggle. She was Ralph Nader's running mate for the Green Party in 96 and 2000. Brilliant author. In the Ancestor book, as an Anishinaabe woman from the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, she says this, in this life, the basic teachings are elegant and resonant. Care for yourself, the land, and your relatives. Well, now how does she translate that to her place? Okay, because that's my point. She says, uh, remember that this world is full of spirit and life and must be reckoned with. For me, she says, the land of berries, wild rice, maple syrup, and medicines comes with a covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabeg people, myself, she says, and the creator. Keep that covenant, that agreement that we will take care of what is given to us and your descendants will be grateful. And Zach, I end with Leduc because it was on the White Earth Reservation that I first heard this ancestor question. There was a man named Michael Dahl, who was a friend of hers, and he, he posed this question to me, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? And when you hear Leduc translate that to her place, she's talking about, say, wild rice. You know, the way she and Michael talk about it is they're not Anishinaabe without wild rice in their stomach during the wild rice moon in August. Kind of like a lot of Plains tribes aren't who they are without the prairie grass diversity that comes from the buffalo or Northwest tribes aren't who they are without free, free roaming and flowing salmon and streams, right? It's that, that cultural keystone that makes them who they are. For Leduc, it's that wild rice that makes her who she is. She knows what to struggle for. You know, if climate change is threatening that little temperature window needed in the fall for wild rice, that's her measurement for whether or not she's struggling against climate change effectively. Do her grandkids get to harvest wild rice? So Zach, for me, a big question in terms of like how to be a good ancestor, right? Is one, listening to the land and diverse cultures beyond your own individual mind. Two, understanding the cultural keystones of your place. What's your version of that wild rice? What mine is snowpack, right? Mm -hmm. So for everyone to kind of wrestle with, you know, what is your rice really can help us create a concrete where we live reason for the fight so that the fight doesn't become abstract and therefore exhausting. So I think you answered my next question a little bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, that was some really, really amazing perspectives. Uh, a lot of my friends that, that I talk to in my generation are aware of the planet's predicament, but feel powerless on some level. The current system is just so entrenched. It's difficult to see beyond it. You know, the dominant system of humans are separate from nature and nature is something to be exploited for profit or something to be conquered. I mean, that just seems so entrenched. Um, so, you know, what can we do on an individual basis to, to have a, a impact on climate change is it finding what our wild rice is um or you know do we become I, my brother talks about you know leaving his tech job and becoming a farmer in new jersey so uh <laughs> garden state that's yeah. a start uh you know what what are some things that that we can do you know um on an individual basis and if it is finding our wild rice you know how do we go about that well 
I guess I, I think that's an incredibly important question. And I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 48. You know, our different generations, um, I really admire your generation. I really do. Um, you know, I'm a professor. And so I see it in my students. I don't know if you knew this, but Peace Corps applications from your generation are at 1960s levels, like 25,000 applications a year for 3,000 openings. Um, you know, I'm very encouraged by your generation. Um, my, also, my heart goes out. You know, maybe you're in kindergarten when 9-11 happens, right? You've never not, you can't remember a time we haven't been in a war. Um, your global consciousness formed as climate science is really being taken seriously. Um, you know, and for many of you, as you're, you're really getting on your feet professionally or just even coming of age for people younger than you, you know, suddenly you're locked away in a global pandemic watching a fascist attack on your capital. And so I find your generation incredibly resilient to still be this freaking motivated um, in the midst of that childhood. I just wanted to honor that. I think, you know, it's more on my generation to listen to you all. Um, I'm humbled by that. I guess, yeah, part of it, Zach, is finding is self-discovery. First, self-care. Understand that purity is poison, right? You're not going to be able to make a perfect meal, right? There's going to be some form of problematic process going into everything, everything you do, whether it's the energy used to get to work, the energy to run this podcast, the energy to get calories in your body. Right. And I think there's a little bit of let it be there. And if you let go of the poison of purity, you can start to experiment. I call it attempting Zach. You can start trying shit, you know, and, and being okay with it, with it not being perfect. You know, I remember, taking a group of students to Kenya. And there was an organization run by Kenyans, which is important, who wanted help installing um, solar for that organization that never had power. So we thought, great, you know, privileged labor for Kenyan ideas. We thought we were flipping the colonial relationship. And there we were drilling and hammering on Christmas Eve morning and all these unemployed male villagers surrounded us thinking there was work, right? And that was that attempt was well-meaning, but we had failed that community. And instead we pulled ourselves out of the community and found ways to invisibly get capital flowing in for Kenyan ideas, Kenyan labor. You gotta attempt and, and be forgiving and, and then take care of yourself, right? Your generation I think is creating a revolution of mindfulness practice, balanced life. Um, so I, I really admire that. Secondly, yes, you need to know your place. We are not earthlings, Zach. We are placelings. You know, I don't think we evolved a conscience for a global scale of problems. I think we can participate in global solutions to how we evolve, which is probably on the watershed scale, the, the bioregional scale. And at the center of every bioregion is the rice. You know, maybe it's a vital river for that place. Maybe it's a vital species that defines that place. Maybe it's something like snow for me. Maybe it's not part of a natural system. Maybe it's a cultural uh, a sacred cultural site, right? Um, like the, 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 the Pettus Bridge in Selma, right? Or um, the, um, the archeological, uh, sacred archeological items in Bears Ears National Monument. But knowing that, discovering that, letting it shape who you are and realize that you're not fully yourself, you're not fighting for that. I think that's the path. 
Zach. And I think it needs to be fun, you know, for Winona LaDuke. Mm, that rice tastes so good, right? When she knows she's gotten her community through another harvest, right? That's a political action. It's an ecological action. It's a climate struggle, but mm, it's good food, right? For me, I'm skiing powder, you know, hoping and, and reminding myself through play and re-energizing myself through play of what my fight is, you know? And, and if we just make it abstract, man, and just make it about purity, which is impossible, we're going to exhaust ourselves and that helps nobody. And I think your generation, that's what I'm learning from my students. If it's, if it's, if I'm lecturing doom and gloom, they're done. Like I'm Gen X. We were, we ate up doom and gloom because <laughs> that's how we thought we were engaged with the world. And I'm learning from your generation. Like we get it. Um, we want to be involved in solutions. It better be collaborative. It better be egalitarian and it better be playful. And it challenges me every day. That's a really good answer. Um, so this, this is kind of a, this next question is, is a obvious one that a lot of people are asking right now is can capitalism in its current form uh, continue to exist while averting climate catastrophe? And I also want to add on to that you know, with, with your experience, you know, being out here in the trenches, you know, tackling this subject all the time um, with with people in the U.S. Uh, and their aversion to anything that is not capitalism. Is that a valuable question to spend time on? Well, well as you know, I, I try to avoid abstractions, right? And capitalism's an abstraction. We have a false dichotomy about alternatives to capitalism, looking at the 20th century brutal state-driven communist regimes. And that has scared us away from thinking about third ways of being economically together. Um, and you know, so part of me wants to speak in a generalization and say that capitalism is fundamentally a violent system. Why is it violent? I don't so much mean, I don't so much mean physically in terms of over the history of capitalism. These have been the labor conditions. This many people have died unnecessarily. These have been the ecological impacts. I don't so much mean that. I think there's a spiritual violence to capitalism in that what really drives that system is the idea of reducing complexity down to commodities, right? So you can have a whole complex culture, like uh, the Anishinaabe community, that it is who they are if there's wild rice in August in their stomach, right? And um, through capitalism, there's been an, a successful attempt to develop a wild rice that could be grown in ponds in California and, and patent, patent that and slap the label wild rice on it and outcompete those indigenous rice growers. The cultural complexity that goes into what wild rice is on the White Earth Reservation, the ecological complexity necessary for that wild rice to continue. The connection between humans and nature necessary that goes back to the ancestors, the creator, right? What makes capitalism violent is it takes that complexity and reduces it down to profit regardless of culture and ecology. So there's a spiritual violence to that profit motive. Secondly, um, we're looking at a planet of finite resources and an economy that spins the tail of infinite growth. And so seeking an infinite growth on, on a finite planet is also fundamentally violent because it wraps us up in narratives that make us forget about the consequences of our comforts. For example, um, 
the idea that rain follows the plow or that rain would follow the plow in the 1890s through 1930s in the American Plains led to the Dust Bowl that not only displaced indigenous communities, but displaced Dust Bowl farmers, making it, you know, a fifth of the continent uninhabitable, right? That capitalist ideology of, you know, this is like a manifest destiny, the frontier idea, the idea that as long as there's a new place to go for land and labor, you don't have to fully care for your place and people is fundamentally violent, leading to things like there's got to be more oil in Iraq so I can keep driving, right? Leading to uh, the commodification of space. And so for me, the alternative is not any kind of 20th century state communism. To me, the alternative, I would say, sometimes I joke with my students, I got this from a brilliant guy named Devon Pena, you know, and he says, um, I'm not a communist, I'm a commonsist, right? Looking at and fighting for that snow as the commons. No one owns it, we all need it to live, right? Looking at and fighting for the atmosphere as the commons, right? Refusing to accept the idea that CO2 is higher than it's been in 2 million years. That's an attack on the commons, right? Um, looking at, uh, no one can own <laughs> a patent to a seed that comes out of a whole cultural history on white earth, right? That's the commons, that idea. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's about the alternative to global growth capitalism, which I need, by the way, if I wanna send my kids to college, I need my investments to grow, right? I'm kind of secret here, purity is poison. But the alternative I'd like to see is place-based, like I said, finding your rice in that place and centering more localized economies around the dignity of labor, around a love of the complexity of ecological health as the cultural keystone to who we are, feeding our relationships, our spirit, our bodies, um, rethinking the good life, not around standard of living, which you measure by GDP, but around quality of life, right? Which you measure around happiness and all the subcategories of happiness, right? Community, you know, um, access to healthcare, access to education, connection with nature, um, deep relationships with, with neighbors um, that, that light up all the great parts of what it means to be human, the ability to experience, you know, um, satisfaction and, 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 and passion in a way that's outside of shame, as we're learning from LGBTQ plus movements. Um, and that's from your generation, Jack. So it's, to me, it's not about that old dichotomy of, well, look what happened when you know, the, the, the Soviet bloc stepped away from capitalism, no, it, it's about looking to place and the dignity of land and labor, starting with what makes you who you are based on what makes your place what it is and how can you give back to that and how does it feed you? you know? And we're starting to see a revolution around that, right? You look at the 20% you know, growth per year or something in farmer's markets, um, you're starting to look at a more uh, locally sourced um, building materials and the construction industry. Um, you're starting to see staycations. And I think a post, we're not post COVID, gosh, the Delta variant is so scary. Um, but if there might be a post COVID era, someday we're lining um, could be how we started to learn to be more satisfied with what's available in our place. And that's to me, the beginning of a, of a commonsism rather than grow or die capitalism. So I have um, 
just one more question. I was I was watching some of your lectures and a couple of times uh, you brought up um, one of the projects that your students uh, were doing uh, with ranchers out west. Um, and you said that the, the ranchers didn't necessarily believe in climate change, but I think it was something to do with the way that they were herding their cattle. They found a way to capture more carbon. Um, can you speak to this project and uh, maybe talk about what building alliances uh, across the aisle to, to save the planet might look like? Yeah, and I like that as a segue, right? Because we were just talking about focusing in locally and looking at local wisdom, right? Um, as to build a common zest uh, approach to an economy, right? And, you know, we need to remember that the roots of the word economies in Greek is oikos, which is the root of both ecology and economy, which means the household, right? And so we can see ourselves across the aisle, as you say, a rancher and an, and an ecologist equally caring for the household of a place, the household of a bioregion. And they both need that household to be healthy for each of their values. We can step out of these old dichotomies between, oh, ranchers are overgrazing and desertifying the West and ecologists are there to save the day, but some of their solutions are too federal. And now ranchers feel like they've been displaced by the government. And here we are again with the Bundys, right? What I've learned from my students who are Gen Z right now, you know, it's blowing my mind is they're just not as compelled by those old divisions. You know, it, they're just, they don't have a dog in that fight. They're interested in what does it take when you can cut across those divisions, cut across, let's say it, let's put it this way, Zach, too often in our politics, we collide over differing beliefs, right? Whether or not the government should fund healthcare, differing beliefs. And we forget about shared values. It's pretty hard to find someone who doesn't believe a child should have access to healthcare somehow. That's a shared value. We just have different beliefs as to whether or not it should come from government funding. But all of our political fights end up just there in the differing beliefs. What my students are showing, no, get under that. Get under whether or not, you know, methane from cattle and overgrazing has been historically problematic. Let's get under that and find a shared value. And that shared value for example, here in the Mountain West is healthy grasslands and healthy soil for healthy grasslands for the, for the rancher, right? That's for the sake of staying on the land that their great grandmother was on. And, and, and if someone doesn't see that as sacred, I'm gonna have an argument with them, even if I agree with them on other issues, right? That's beautiful, yeah? And, and if they can partner with ecologists who need those grasses to be healthy, who need that soil to be healthy to sequester carbon, right? In, in an era of the UN saying it's a code red for humanity in terms of climate change, now we've got shared values. And so what's been happening is a, a number of students working with Cold Harbor Institute, uh, my grad students been working with them to bunch and move livestock around in a way that mimics wildlife. And what's been happening is rather than overgrazing, They've been enhancing grasslands, soil quality, carbon sequestration. And so suddenly, right, climate action, right, is 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 a, a is friend is a friend. <laughs> climate action is a friend to maybe a, a climate skeptic rancher who's scratching their head over how to stay on, you know, their great grandparents' land and how to pass it on to their great grandkids. And Zach, now we get to what kind of ancestor do you want to be? 
what kind of ancestor do you want to be um, is a shared values question. I want to listen to a rancher who's fourth generation who wants an eighth generation on that land. Who better, you know, other than an indigenous community that goes back to the beginning of the human story, who better to teach me? Regardless of how, whether or not we agree on masks or whatever, right? You know, and it's a diverse community, so many of them are progressive. But who better to listen to, right, um, to understand what kind of ancestor I want to be than people who, if they get their land wrong, can't eke out a life. And at that point, I realized, Zach, and this gets back to what is your rice, what is your fire, what is your snowpack? The best answer to the ancestor question is on the land. The place has the answer. So if for me, there's still being snowpack is necessary to me being a good ancestor here. In that snowpack are a lot of answers, right? There's quality of snow. There's a lot of dust on snow from overdevelopment, which makes it melt faster, which messes up the rivers, right? There's a reduction in snowpack because of climate change. And that makes me have to rethink how we develop our communities, how we engage politically. But the snow is like my barometer. And if in each place, like the rancher does with grass here, if in each place we can each learn what is the barometer of our place, we can stay um, aware in a humble way because if we're getting it wrong, the land will tell us. And we can stay energized because if it's based on what we love and what we enjoy, this like abstract crushing climate report from the UN isn't gonna get you anywhere, man, right? But if you wanna have maple syrup on rice with your breakfast next summer, or when you're, when you're a dad, that's a really energizing way to keep asking what kind of ancestor do I wanna be? Um, what is the Center for Humans and Nature? And, and why is it called the Center for Humans and Nature? Yeah, and, and you know, I'm a fellow at the Center for Humans and Nature, so I, I'm a little shy to speak for the whole center. But what really drew me in is they're trying to understand the human place in more than human systems of which we're always and already a part. And so if indeed humans are part of ecological systems, then ecological care begins with caring for each other, right? And what the Center for Humans and Nature is starting to do is really revolutionized who is an environmental writer, for whom is environmental health, and really looking at diverse cultural voices, social justice movements that disrupt the traditional conservationist conversation. And so it's an honor to be involved with them. You know, we've got this, what kind of ancestor do you want to be booked? I want to give props to Christy Belcourt, the, the artist who did this incredible painting. And then in, on September 15th, we have a five book box set coming out called Kinship um, Belonging in a World of Relations that, you know, brings in even more authors. And it's all from the Center for Humans and Nature. They've started a press. And so um, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. I'm, I'm just incredibly honored. And they're very humble. Like they're constantly bringing in voices from more diverse communities to challenge them on, you know, who are they to define human place in the greater than human world. So it, it's fun to be involved with them. John, thank you so much. This uh, conversation gave me a lot of hope. (music) 
Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth Podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.